Hello and welcome to this pay-per-view segment. I've got a very important subject in this segment. A story of state euthanasia, which has been covered up and called the COVID-19 first wave. And it involves a drug, an end-of-life drug called midazolam. So here's the first article. This is in the Daily Mail. Now this is from July last year, but I can't find a story from this year in the media about this story, so I'll use this. Did care homes use powerful sedatives to speed COVID deaths? Number of prescriptions for the drug midazolam, some people pronounce it midazolam, I pronounce it midazolam, double during height of the pandemic. The number of prescriptions for a powerful sedative that can kill the frail doubled at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, raising fears it was used to control elderly residents in stretched care homes or even to hasten their deaths. Official figures show out-of-hospital prescribing of the drug midazolam increased by more than 100% in April compared to previous months. An anti-euthanasia campaigner last night said he suspected that the spike was evidence that many people have been put on end-of-life protocols or pathways. Whistleblowers also claim to have witnessed misuse of sedatives with staff told to give them to dementia patients to stop them wandering the corridors. The claims are unverified and were last night vigorously disputed by the Association for Palliative Medicine, which said that there were good reasons for the increase. Over the past five years, about 15,000 prescriptions from midazolam to be used outside of hospital have been written each month in England. In April, 38,582 Prescriptions were made more than twice the February figure. Retired neurologist Professor Patrick Pulicino, who was instrumental in raising concerns a decade ago that the Liverpool care pathway was bringing forward patients' deaths, believes the jump indicated something similar had happened. He said, Midazolam depresses respiration and it hastens death. It changes end-of-life care into euthanasia. It depresses respiration. So why would you give it to coronavirus patients then, which we're told is a respiratory illness? Professor Policino also claims that an official flowchart intended to help health workers decide if people sick with COVID-19 were suitable for intensive care wrongly consigned those deemed too frail to end-of-life care. That meant he suggested that some were not taken to hospital even though they could have been helped by doing so. Certainly there have been more unavoidable deaths because of COVID-19, he claimed, but to me this flowchart encouraged use of end-of-life sedation with midazolam, effectively resulting in euthanasia pathways. Midazolam is similar to diazepam, better known as Valium, but twice as powerful. It reduces anxiety, relaxes muscles, and if enough is given, provides total, sedat total sedation for dying patients in extreme pain or distress. On its own, and if used with painkilling opiates, it can depress breathing, which is potentially fatal. Eileen Chubb of the charity Compassion Care said a number of care home workers had told her Sedatives were used too freely during the pandemic, adding that some staff were under the definite impression that very sick care home residents should not be sent to hospital. But Dr. Amy Prophet of the Association for Palliative Medicine said, I absolutely do not believe that there have been cases of euthanasia in care homes related to COVID-19. She said a rise in the use of midazolam was to be expected because the drug would have been an obvious choice to give to those with problems breathing a symptom of coronavirus. I can understand why people are raising concerns, but when prescribed and used appropriately, midazolam will not hasten or, hasten or prolong someone's death. It will just give comfort, she added. Well, this drug has been used at way above the recommended amount and the amount that it should be. There's something called titration, which is giving someone a certain dose of a drug and see if it has an effect 
if it has no effect, then you increase the dose, and if it has no effect, you increase, and so on. And the amount used from the word go has been far more than it should have been in terms of this drug midazolam with care home residents. They've not been doing titration at all. These are the same care home residents that since 2020, you know, when, when this started in 2020, have been assigned DNR forms, DNR notices, do not resuscitate orders. And this drug midazolam has been used in combination with morphine, which can cause further problems. And Matt Hancock ordered two years worth back in the spring of 2020, midazolam. I mean, we're talking unprecedented amounts of this drug being used and ordered. And this was called the COVID first wave. And there's another article I want to feature here. This is by Jackie Devoy, who has a relative in a care home. So she knows firsthand as someone who has an experience of having a relative in a care home. And she is a mainstream journalist. She writes for The Telegraph. She's a freelance journalist, but she writes for the mainstream. She writes for one or two other newspapers as well, it would seem. So this is what she wrote. Now, she's done a lot of research into this. She wrote this on an alternative website. She's gone to the media, by the way, and none of them will touch this. This is what she wrote. My Dezolum, the scandal that cannot be ignored. When my mum, she says, was put on a syringe driver, a device used to automatically administer drugs, three days before her death in 2009, I didn't think twice. The kindly hospice nurse told me the drugs were to make her comfortable, and what daughter doesn't want their mum to be comfortable in her final days? I knew my mum was dying because the hospice doctor had told me so. I didn't question how she knew. Back then I trusted doctors and just accepted that. As well as the gift of healing, they also possessed the gift of foresight. How, how ignorant I was. And I'll tell you, when the truth about this COVID hoax comes out, including the fact that there's no virus, as I've detailed in these pay-per-view episodes since the spring of 2020, and I detail in a very comprehensive way in a new book I'm getting ever closer to finishing now. I've been writing it since, I think it was about November, December last year. And um, it's... It's a book which is all about questioning. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are into alternative information who would be surprised by some of the stuff that's in it in terms of questioning. And it looks at the COVID hoax. It looks at virus theory. It looks at um, so many things that people take for granted and turns them on their head right down to the nature of reality itself, by the way. There's some information on that subject in the book, which I think would surprise some people. Anyway. And I name a lot of the names involved in this COVID hoax in this in this book. Some of the names I think a lot of people may not have heard of before. And I do talk about this Midazolam. Oh, I will. I've not written that part yet, but I'm, I'm going to cover that in there as well. You know, when um, when the truth about this hoax comes out, then the idea that a doctor knows best and you can trust everything a doctor says is going to be shown to be an absolute fallacy. Yes, there are some good doctors, but most doctors just repeat what they learn at medical school, what the drug companies tell them. So the article continues. 11 years later, last summer, a very distressed man called me. He said he'd seen me being interviewed by David Icke on davidike.com. I interviewed him actually for Second Opinion, David Icke. Very interesting interview. Second Opinion, you can find all the Second Opinion interviews with all the pay-per-view episodes as well. 
about the culling of the elderly in Carehams and told me one of his relatives had been a victim. He didn't mince his words and told me loud and clear that a murder had been committed and that he could prove it. Had I not known what I already knew, I'd have dismissed him as a nutter. I mean, a lot in my job as a freelance journalist, but I could tell from this man's earnestness that he was telling the truth and the truth and that truth was horrific. I needed evidence, though. As a journalist, I have to be very careful before pitching a story to a newspaper. I need to get my facts straight and have proof to back up every claim. Well, I'm not convinced that newspapers do that, to be honest, but even if they do, what sources are they? I'm not talking about this story, I mean in general. What sources are they citing? They just take what the mainstream says, and that's their research. Well, they call it research, anyway. Take what the mainstream says and repeat it. And even then... Even if what they say the mainstream says is actually what happened on any particular subject, what the mainstream misses is context, which is why it happened, or why it's happening, and the connections into other people, organisations, situations, etc. But anyway, the article continues. Personal anecdotes are all well and good, uh, this article says, as well as being an essential part of any investigation and report, but cannot be taken at face value. So I met up with this man, uh, Jackie Devoy says, and that's when I saw the evidence with my own eyes. Unfortunately, this information can't be shared for reasons I'll be able to disclose at a later date, but it will be eventually. I was interviewed by David Icke at the end of a most tumultuous year. That'll be 2020, in case you've forgotten. That was the first time I'd spoken publicly about what I'd learned. I was as nervous as hell, but I felt compared to share what I'd discovered, that our elderly were indeed being killed in hospitals, care homes and hospices. And they were calling the, um, you know, what did they call the, the deaths of these elderly people? COVID-19, the first wave. Why are all these elderly people dying? Well, two reasons. A, they're elderly, and elderly people do tend to die. And B, midazolam, DNR forms. The Ike interview, uh, uh, Jackie D. Voice says, went viral and my email inbox rapidly filled up. The accounts I was sent by people who believed their loved ones were murdered were heartbreaking. These people were desperate, not knowing where to turn, so seeing the video gave them hope. I suddenly had a new family, that's how it felt anyway, and I wanted to help them in any way I could. I believe the best way to get these stories heard was through the mainstream media. <laughs> She's learned a lesson now. So I sent a teaser email to 28 editors telling them I had a really big story that needed to be published. I followed that up a few days later with details of the story. The pitch looked like this. Euthanasia is being used as a medical protocol in UK hospitals. Extensive research reveals that the Liverpool Care Pathway, which was abandoned in 2014 after being deemed inhumane, was brought back in at the start of the pandemic in early 2020 and is being implemented in hospitals and care homes across the UK. Evidence includes the following. So this is what Jackie Deeble wrote. A House of Commons document detailing a conversation between Health Secretary Matt Hancock and Conservative MP Dr Luke Evans, during which they discussed the use of certain medications to give COVID patients to give COVID patients a good death, in quotes. A good death is medical terminology for euthanasia. I, now, th there's a video online of that conversation, which Jackie Devoy sent in this, this pitch to the... Uh, mainstream media. Confirmation of Hancock ordering two years worth of a sedative called Midazolam from a French supplier. The order was made in March 2020. It was claimed at the time that the drug was for the treatment of COVID patients. Midazolam suppresses the respiratory system. COVID is a respiratory disease. Midazolam is used as an execution drug in the US. Quotes from doctors, pathologists and pharmacists confirming what Midazolam is and how it should and should not be used. Paperwork and links showing the LCP, Liverpool Care Pathway, protocol was reintroduced in early 2020. This time around, it was not called the Liverpool Care Pathway, but the protocol was identical. 
the use of a cocktail of drugs, usually midazolam and morphine, along with the withdrawal of food and water leading to the untimely death of the patient. Documents showing the dosage of midazolam given to COVID patients and showing how breathlessness in patients is to be managed using midazolam. Information from anonymous insiders, including lawyers, doctors, care workers and nurses who have seen this abominable practice happening firsthand. A video made by Manchester mayoral candidate Michael Elston outlining what he knows to be happening with regards to the killing and culling of the elderly using Midazolam. 16 case studies who are willing to speak to the press about their loved ones' deaths being hastened in hospitals and care homes. Some cases are historic and occurred whilst the LCP was in place. Some have happened in the last 14 months. One is a near miss, when a woman who had nothing wrong with her was put on an end-of-life treatment only to be rescued by her grandson at the last minute, not by the care home staff. Many people believe it's okay for the sick and elderly to be given a pharmaceutical helping hand when they're in what's deemed to be the final stages of their lives. Few seem to realise that euthanasia in any form, voluntary or involuntary, is illegal in the UK. If a person is found to be involved in euthanasia, they risk a life sentence. Those found guilty and charged with assisted suicide can get 14 years in prison. The normalisation of euthanasia has been occurring for years. This month, Matt Hancock started to push for the legalisation of assisted suicide. I wonder why he might have done that. Answers on a postcard for why he might want to have done that. Because I can't work it out. The lack of response was shocking. The silence was deafening. It was clear that no editor was prepared to run the story. I still needed to get this information out to the public through, though, but how to do it? I was wary of taking the alternative media route, but what choice did I have? I knew what I had to do. I went to the Isle of Wight with a man who originally came back to me in mid-2020 to visit David Icke. We presented him with incontrovertible evidence, which, as I say, will, will later be published that the elderly were being killed in hospitals, hospices and care homes using a drug called Midazolam. On June the 4th, 2021, David Icke put out a powerful video revealing some horrendous truths. The emails went up, linked to that video in the description of this episode, along with the video of the conversation between Matt Hancock and Conservative MP Dr Luke Evans, which, which Shaki Devo mentioned in that list I read out just now. Uh, the emails once again came flooding in, with every story I read, I had a jarring feeling in my brain. These stories were really resonating with me. Why? Then it struck me. My mum, 2009, in a hospice, something in her arm, a constant pumping of medications into her body. I saw them set up the syringe driver. Her eyes were open then. Seconds later, her eyes closed, never to reopen. I sat with her for two days. Her body did not move, but she was grunting and groaning like a person who'd been gagged. She was desperately trying to say something, but I didn't know what. I noticed her lips were dry and dabbed them with water and dabbed them with water. I dropped tiny pieces of ice cream into her mouth. No one else bought her any food or water. I didn't think to ask why. I trusted the hospice staff. I had no reason not to. Now it's a very different story. As the realisation dawned, I was overcome with guilt. Why had I been so stupid? Why had I not asked questions? We need to question everything. And that's why that's a big focus of this new book that I'm writing, questioning everything. Why didn't I realise that my mum was being euthanised? I could I could have saved her, but I didn't. This is exactly how every relative of every victim felt. Their pain was now my pain. Although saddened and exhausted, it made me all the more determined to go on. My voice wobbled when I mentioned my mum during an interview I did with Gareth Ike, David's son, on my birthday, on the iconic media platform, which is full of 
content on every subject you can imagine uh, was created specifically to cover stories that the mainstream won't cover and to give a voice to people who can't be heard by the mainstream. I was gratefully give a platform to me, she says, and five of the people I've been speaking to on the internet, on his internet news show right now. That's the show on Iconic. The stories that were told by a wife, a husband, a daughter, a granddaughter and a son that day were heartbreaking and shocking. I then contacted an old friend, journalist and radio host, Richie Allen, link to that interview in the description as well, who invited four more relatives of victims onto his radio show. Four more. I co-hosted the show but didn't need to say much. The stories spoke for themselves. Listeners could hear the pain in his guests' voices. I'd heard their stories before from three daughters and a son who'd lost both parents within six days of each other in separate care homes, but still got a lump in my throat. I later did an interview with my friend Ant Inchily for his YouTube show, then another for American Channel SGT and one for this website, and one for this website, Unity News Network with David Clues. I was saying pretty much the same thing in each broadcast, and although speaking publicly made me anxious, I knew it had to be done. It was the least I could do. A month later, I'm still trying to get the national UK papers to run a story. I'm determined to get the voices of the victims' relatives heard by a wider audience, as this is the only way that the heinous culling can be stopped. The more people that know about it, the more outraged there will be. The government who have instigated this sickening and unlawful protocol have blood on their hands, especially Matt Hancock, and need to, at the very least, answer some questions. At the very least, that needs to happen. Next month I'm making a documentary, she says. Everything going to plan, it should be ready for release in late October. The truth needs to be heard before further murders are committed and more families are destroyed. And just uh, another story I found. This is from April last year about the treatment of patients. This is about ventilators. Now, I've said before that ventilators, especially when you don't need them, can can cause problems, if not kill you. And this is in the independent. Coronavirus patients on ventilators are unusually likely to die, causing some doctors to change strategy. Ventilators are being sourced and stockpiled across the world, but some working on the front lines of the coronavirus epidemic, as it was called then, I guess, are now wondering whether they might do more harm than expected. A recent report from the NHS, which is linked to in this article, shows that over 67% of coronavirus patients put on ventilators go on to die. Normally around 40% of patients will be expected to die while receiving mechanical ventilation. Now bear in mind this, in America there is financial incentives to put patients on ventilators. $39,000 if they put a coronavirus diagnosed patient on a ventilator and they get $13,000 to diagnose the patient in the first place. This unusually, with, with a test that can't test for the virus, even if there is a virus. See episode 76, and my new book in even more detail. This unusually high death rate has also been shown in the US. On Wednesday morning, the Associated Press reported that around 80% of coronavirus patients put on ventilators in New York go on to die, according to state and city officials. As I said, this was April 2020. A small study from Wuhan also showed that... Th- again, which is linked to in this article, also showed that out of 37 people treated with mechanical ventilation, only seven survived. The numbers are alarming enough that some physicians in the US are now trying to keep their patients away from ventilators for as long as possible. If we're able to make them better without intubating them, they are more likely to have a better outcome, we think. Dr. Joseph Habouche, an emergency physician working on coronavirus wards in New York, told Time magazine. In a letter to the editor published in Intensive Care Medicine, Dr. Luciano Gattinoni, an expert in 
anesthesiology and intensive care at the Medical University of Göttingen wrote that coronavirus patients in Italy showed symptoms subtly but significantly different from those of other patients in respiratory distress. So far, doctors have been following standard protocols for acute respiratory distress syndrome as their guide on how to treat coronavirus patients, he notes, but those protocols may be doing damage. Ventilators force oxygen into the lungs via tube down. By the way, this thing about Italy and Wuhan, Italy was the big European centre at the start of this, apparently, for the virus. Now, what do Lombardy in northern Italy, which was the specific area of Italy, and Wuhan have in common? They both have incredibly toxic, polluted air. Now, can you work out what kind of parts of the body and what kind of symptoms toxic, polluted air might generate? The article continues, ventilators force oxygen into the lungs via a tube down the throat while a patient is heavily sedated. Pressure and volume of oxygen as well as oscillation can be varied according to need. It may be the standard high pressure ventilation that works well in patients with ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is not well tolerated by people whose lungs have been damaged by coronavirus or by toxic polluted air. Forcing air into the lungs at such high pressures may cause further inflammation or irritate an immune system already in hyperdrive. We need to be patient, Gattinoni wrote, noting that aggressive high-pressure ventilation could lead to bad outcomes in coronavirus causing pneumonia, where lung damage present, presents def differently to how it might with other types of pneumonia. All we can do ventilating these patients is buying time with minimum additional damage, the lowest possible positive end expiratory pressure and gentle ventilation, Gattinoni added. The article continues, an emergency physician working on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic in the NHS told The Independent, initially we assumed this illness was very similar to ARDS, so we have been using ventilator strategies, which are standard in ARDS, but in recent days there are lots of suggestions that similarities are not as strong as initially thought. To argue that using any ventilator at all is worse than using no ventilator, you need to know what would happen to the patient without a ventilator. The physician added, nobody would get ethical approval to randomise people to ventilator or no ventilator in a trial. Therefore, we cannot prove what the difference would be. No, but you can incentivize hospitals to use them, which is what they did. But the expert consensus would be basically everybody who goes onto a ventilator does so because their lungs are doing so lungs are doing so badly in oxygenation they are about to die. People would argue without proof that of all the people who need a ventilator, if you don't put them on one, mortality will be close to one hundred percent. So from there you can't argue that sixty to eighty percent is worse. Current anecdotal evidence is that obesity is really important. We are seeing loads of obese people becoming extremely unwell, especially men aged fifty five to seventy. It's unclear exactly why that's happening. A retired NHS doctor who specialised in lung disease told the independent that successful ventilation often depends on the skill of the operator of the ventilator, meaning that those who have never specialised in ventilation but have been called on to help in COVID-19 wards can be unwittingly harming coronavirus patients through their lack of expertise. The former specialist, who was one of many previously retired doctors who have been asked to return to the NHS due to excessive need, added that normal intensive care units also do not have the right calibre of pipe required to deliver as much oxygen as is currently needed for those suffering from COVID-19, and so ventilation may be less effective in those settings. Because of excessive need, he was called back, even though hospitals, certainly in the early part of 2020, almost certainly longer than that, were empty. Anyway, Usually, such wards would have far fewer patients requiring ventilation. Additionally, coronavirus patients who receive mechanical ventilation stay ventilated for much longer than most other pneumonia patients. In the purpose-built hospitals like the Nightingale Hospital, they may have those wide diameter pipes needed to deliver that amount of oxygen, but in other hospitals it's not usual.
According to the BMJ, British Medical Journal, two-thirds of patients in the UK with coronavirus have acquired critical care receive mechanical ventilation within 24 hours of the mission. So these hospital staff that people went out and clapped in the early mid part of 2020 as heroes, well, when you look at the way patients have been tr- patients have been treated, especially elderly patients, uh, heroes is the last thing they are. Very much the opposite in some cases. So in many cases but in some cases in the sense that they know what they're doing some you know the idea that hospital staff all care about the patients is ludicrous there's a lot that don't care and what we need to do is when we're talking about any group of people in any sphere of society is to stop thinking in groups we need to look at people as individuals because any group has a spectrum of perspective and personality and thus that will play out among that group in different behavior so then we ask the question why if this virus is real and it's as deadly as they claim it is and if if it's a bioweapon even more so do you need to test for it with a test that can't test for any virus never mind the virus even if, if there was a virus why do you need to incentivize hospitals to put patients on ventilators which can kill them or cause massively more health problems which can be called COVID-19. Why do you need to cull the elderly in the way I've described? Why do you need to do any of those things if there's a real virus because it will take care of itself? Those people will get ill and die anyway if they catch the virus. Which So you don't need to do any of those things if there's a real virus but you do if there is no virus, but you want to give the appearance that there is. The people behind this, not just this Midasolam story, but authorities' response to alleged COVID-19. Hancock, Johnson, Witte, Valance, Fauci in America and others in other countries are psychopaths. They don't give a damn about the people. They claim they do to make it look like the policies they're recommending and implementing are based on a desire to protect the health of the population but they don't give a shit about you. So why are we obeying them? Well, I'm not I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not interested in social distancing. I'm not taking the fake vaccine. But people are. When all these people are interested in, uh, these people in authority and government, is lying and imposing fascism on the population. And this doesn't end unless we make it end. They'll continue with variants and variants and variants and cases from a fake test. Adverse events and deaths on the vaccine cited as COVID or variants, unless we make this end. And these people behind this, they must go before a Nuremberg type of trial for crimes against humanity. They must go to jail for the rest of their lives and we must not stop until those trials are playing on live television.